you could turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be uh, looking at verses 18 through 22 this morning, and uh, we're going to look at them again next week, and we're going to look at them again when I get back from vacation. Um, that's because I thought I could no, in no way do justice to this text by one sermon. I went back and listened to uh, an old ARP friend of mine who handled this in one sermon, and I said, 40 minutes, he couldn't do it justice. And uh, there's too much that we, uh, we would miss uh, if I tried to do that. So uh, there are, in a sense, three distinct themes that are all joined together to weave the fabric of this text. So uh, today we hit the first of those. So verse 18, <clears throat> For Christ also suffered... Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, Though we have a baptism today, we're not hitting the baptism section. So, uh, oh well. Let's pray. Father, bless us and keep us by your word proclaimed, understood, and believed. Uh, May those who believe know your face shines upon them, that you are gracious to them. Turn toward us and give us peace, though our lives are often filled with turmoil and conflict. Express your great and abiding love to your people. In Jesus Christ, amen. Talked, uh, well, I, during my pastoral prayer, I mentioned prayer reports, uh, not prayer reports, news reports. Um, <clears throat> one of these days I'll get it right. And uh, I talked about America, but what about overseas? It's hard if you pay attention to the news to miss the ways that Christians are being persecuted in very public kinds of ways. It's hard to miss what's happening in Syria as they are run off, as some of them are killed. It's hard to miss what happened uh, to the tour bus of uh, Coptic Christians this past week in Egypt. It breaks our hearts see brothers and sisters uh, suffer under such circumstances, Uh, but for them, it's more difficult, as you might imagine. There are many there who are mourning the loss of loved ones who have been killed unjustly because of their faith in Christ. And it's not so much a question of what we say to them or we say about that, but for me it's much more of a question of what does the Scriptures say to that? How do the Scriptures address that? And it's not just uh, so that we 
can talk with other people, but that we might prepare for what might possibly come our way. See things happening that indicate that things are getting more difficult for Christians. One of my friends who's probably a little to the left of me uh, in terms of how he understands his faith uh, posted this thing on Facebook. Why in the world would anyone say that evangelicals are persecuted in this country? And I kind of... Have you been watching the news lately? Have you seen the people who've lost their businesses? Have you seen schools that are not able to move into communities? Entire, not just a particular building, but in terms of an entire township band can't move into it. And so there are realities that exist, and we don't know if those things are just going to contain static or if they're going to get worse or they're going to get better. We don't know. And so we need the Word of God to instruct us just in case. The big idea this morning is that Jesus suffered and prevailed for our salvation, and that does tie into the fact, the reality of persecution. First off, Jesus suffered for our sins according to the will of God. Peter has been talking about um, how to live a faithful life in the midst of an unfaithful place. He's been talking about suffering unjustly, and he's been giving wisdom to them. But here, he now provides a couple of examples to comfort these people in the face of persecution that is coming, and in some cases, is already experienced He's going to provide two particular examples within this passage. One is Jesus, and the other one is Noah. We'll get Jesus today. We'll get Noah next week. Now, as we look at this text, there is much that is obscure. In fact, Martin Luther said this was one of the most obscure passages in the entire Bible. But the main thrust of what is going on in this paragraph is the reality of Christ crucified and triumphant in the midst of persecution. We see Christ also suffered once for sins. The word for at the beginning of that sentence reminds us that it is connected to the previous paragraph, the previous line of thought that Peter had been making. The line of thought which ended with that idea of, <coughs> excuse me, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And so here we have an example of Jesus who suffered for doing good. Here we have an example of Jesus who suffered according to God's will. And while he doesn't explicitly mention that Jesus died, uh, sorry, suffered in accordance with God's will here, he does explicitly say it in his sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where he says that this Jesus delivered up, and he mentioned before this, he mentions all the good that Jesus had done. This same Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so Peter 
wholeheartedly believed that Jesus suffered according to the will and the purpose of God. The suffering of Jesus was not accidental. The suffering of Jesus was not coincidental. The suffering of Jesus was not an aspect of neglect on the part of the Father. It was, in fact, according to God's plan and according to God's purposes. It was planned and purposeful. And so we see that as Messiah, He suffered just as some of the people in the original audience suffered, just as Christians today sometimes suffer, just as some of us in the future may suffer. And when I say that, it's in terms of that he suffered, like us, according to God's plan. Now, of course, there's a difference that separates, a huge difference that separates the suffering of Jesus from our suffering. His is for our salvation. Ours is simply to testify to the greatness of his salvation. Okay, so uh, while there are similarities in our suffering, they're not identical in their character. We read from Leviticus and Hebrews for a reason this morning, and that is because we're going to see the reality of Jesus, because it says here, he suffered once for sins. And so Jesus, when he suffered, was performing a priestly act because it was the priests who offered the sacrifice for sins. And as we heard, uh, it wasn't just the Day of Atonement, okay? Uh, But on those days, the Day of Atonement, which we read from Leviticus 9, uh, sorry, no, not 9, was it 16? I can't remember. They had to, the priest first had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin, and then he would offer a sacrifice for the sin of the people. But the rest of the year, he continues to make these sin offerings. And so much of what the priest did on a daily basis was sin offering after sin offering after sin offering for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. My, that must have gotten monotonous. The slaughtering of animals because the sin of the people didn't stop but kept happening. There's a great difference here. Our great high priest, Jesus, offered himself once. One time. And that phrase that we see repeated often in Hebrews 9 uh, sometimes is taken by people to refer to once for all people, but the context means uh, that it really is referring to once for all time. It was a one and done offering, not having to be repeated like the offerings of the Old Testament because the true sacrifice to which they all pointed had come and had laid down his life. It is finished. It is sufficient. It is done as the author of Hebrews labors to make clear to us in places like chapter 9. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, insert that idea of time, at the end of the ages 
to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so as the original audience considers this suffering of Jesus once for sins, they're to realize that their suffering takes on a different meaning. It has a different character to it. That they're they're not suffering for their sins because Jesus has suffered for their sins. And so they're not experiencing the judgment of God. but they're experiencing the response of a wicked world to the goodness of God. They're no longer under judgment, and neither is their existence meaningless, but rather purposeful. And so we see that the Son suffered for our sins, and we suffer for Him according to the plan of God. Secondly, Jesus died in the body though just, for we who were unjust. Peter continues and he begins to clarify the the earlier statement that the sufferings of Jesus, so that the original audience and us too can get the point of Jesus' sufferings. It's very important we see here that the righteous one for the unrighteous Ones, the one righteous person suffering for many unrighteous people. Jesus suffered precisely because he was the righteous one. That he is the righteous one is clear from other texts of Scripture. We see in Hebrews nine, uh, Hebrews 4, of course, that as our great high priest, he was tempted in all ways like us, and yet without sin. We see as well in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus, measured by the standard of the law, fulfilled all righteousness. There was no sin, no breaking, no departing, no failure to reach the mark for Jesus. He fulfilled all righteousness in the sight of God. And so Jesus' suffering was not due to His own personal moral failure. Rather, we see that though He deserved eternal blessings through His obedience. Jesus bore a curse. Tim Keller notes that the basic premise of religion, that if you try hard to be good, things will go well for you, is wrong. Jesus lived perfectly, yet suffered. And that is the point of Peter here as well. Jesus, righteous. Jesus, suffering according to the will of God. He suffered for the unrighteous. He suffered on behalf of the unrighteous. He suffered in the place of the unrighteous. 
And so it wasn't for his sins that he suffered, though he suffered for sins. It was their sins that he suffered for. It was their moral failure that he suffered for. We brought the kids to a different church for VBS this week. And it was good. They had these plaques uh, in the hallways. We believe. And it mentioned various things that they as a congregation believed. But I took issue with one. Maybe more if I had paid attention. I don't know. But it said, we believe Jesus died for my sins. Now, the grammar Nazi in me was cringing. Because there was no agreement in terms of the pronouns. We believe, should say, Jesus died for our sins. Okay? And so there's a reflection, so to speak, and and I don't know the, the motivation for whomever came up with the plaque. It could have been a very good motivation. I'm not criticizing the motivation of the person. But there is a tendency to individualize Christianity instead of recognizing the corporate nature of Christianity. And so while I can say with all integrity, Jesus died for my sins, and I I personally must believe, we also recognize that I am not the only person for whom Jesus died. But he died for the church, as the Scriptures testify. And so it's our sins, because we are the unrighteous. He died for us. Not just for me. But think of the sins for which he suffered. Our greed. Our racism. Our deceit. Our insubordination. That's rebellion, children. Theft. For our slander of others. For our rage and unrighteous anger. For our gluttony. And so many more. And so what this means is that the people in Peter's day who were suffering were not being punished for their sins. The Christians who suffered in Peter's day were not being punished for their sins. And if you, should you suffer, and you believe in Jesus Christ, your suffering is not a punishment for your sins because Christ has been punished for your sins. He suffered precisely so you wouldn't be punished. And He did this in order that He may bring us to God. Peter lays out this purpose. Didn't didn't do it simply so that we can remain kind of lost and scattered about the world, but he's gathering us back up in order to present us before the presence of the Father, pure and blameless, holy and good. Part of what we sang with let us love and sing and wonder. 
Why is he bringing us to God? Because when we sin, we run from God. Don't we? Think of Adam and Eve. What's the first thing that happened? Well, actually, what's the second thing that happened? The first thing is they said, oh no, we're naked, and suddenly it was a problem. But the second thing that happened is they heard God, and they hid themselves. Sinners run from God. That is what they do. We hide. I realized this morning during my pastoral prayer that today is not Father's Day, that next Sunday is Father's Day. I always get it, the, you know, because Mother's Day is the second Sunday. I think Father's Day is the second Sunday. What a fool I am! I don't like Father's Day. <laughs> we do. I'm getting there. Oh, trust me, I'm getting there. I hate Father's Day. And the reason I hate Father's Day is not because I hate my father. Because I don't. But I'm aware of how I fall short as a father. Some people are normal and healthy. I'm not. And so I think of the ways in which I fail my children. And how could they celebrate me? That's why I hate my birthday. That's why I struggle with my anniversary. It's why I struggle with Pastor Appreciation Week or month or whatever it is. Because the older I get, the more I realize how far short I fall. And I see a greater degree of my selfishness and my impatience, my lack of gentleness, and I could go on and on. And so instead of going, yay, Father's Day, kind of what I want to do is this. This is when I wish we had a bigger pulpit. <laughs> I want to do what Adam and Eve did. I want to hide in the bushes. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which is a powerful allegory, the longer people are in hell, it's like he, he has a, the idea of a city. And they're there for a while. They move to the suburbs, and they move to the outskirts. And they, as time goes by, they keep moving farther and farther away from everybody else because they're weary of love. And so they're hiding. They're running not just from God, but they're running from His image and other people. And they're running from themselves. And that's what we do. We hide. We also put on these crazy little fig leaves. Our own self-righteousness, our own goodness... We can put on the fig leaf of philosophy to try to uh, explain things away. We can put on the fig leaf of psychology to sort of explain things away. And 
soothe ourselves apart from the work of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it's only Jesus who comes to find us in the bushes. Jesus who removes our fig leaves so that we can, again, be present to God and to other people. Because we realize that we are no longer tattered with rags, but we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And we're able to stand in the presence of God and be fully acceptable to Him, and we are also therefore able to stand in the presence of His people and be fully acceptable to them. Jesus removes these leaves and rags. And as I pondered it this morning in my office, I I thought of the movie Castaway. As uh, Chuck Nolan was stranded on an island for years, everyone thought he was dead. His clothes have become rags. He somehow finally manages to get a raft out past the breakers and so he can be in a shipping lane and he gets discovered. And before he is presented to the world, they change his clothes. They give him what he lacked so that he is presentable. And Jesus gives us what we lack so that we are presentable before the Father. Because you don't come to the king in dirty rags. You come in robes of righteousness. So, what we see here, what we're intended to behold, to consider, to ponder, to meditate upon, are God's mercy and kindness in providing a Savior. The reality that the light is on and it's okay to come home. Jesus, who suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, also, Peter clarifies, being put to death in the flesh. There's three aspects to that. One is that it's passive for Jesus. Uh, Jesus was not putting himself to death. Jesus was not committing suicide, but this was rather something that happened to Jesus. He didn't run from it, but he was not suicidal. His suffering was not simply temporary. It was not simply some broken bones. It was not simply a beating or some discomfort for a while, but it was to death. It was complete. It was final. And some of them, when they were persecuted, would in fact be persecuted to death. Not all of them. Some would survive, though they would be impoverished or injured and possibly even crippled. In His suffering, He went to the uttermost. 
We look to one who suffered physically. He suffered physical pain as well as emotional pain and spiritual pain to the end. And so when we suffer, we look to one who has walked that road before us, one who understands what it feels like, and one who is able to give us mercy and grace as our great high priest. Precisely because, again, he experienced our weakness He knew pain. He knew hunger. He knew thirst. This is no imaginary sort of atonement that Jesus makes. It is very real. And so Jesus, the righteous one, suffered death to save unrighteous people like us. Thirdly, we also see that Jesus was raised and exalted according to the will of God. Peter wants to remind them of this because death seems so final. We've lost a few people within our congregation this year. We don't see them. We don't hear their voice. They are seemingly lost to us. And when Brothers and sisters are lost in the sense of they're persecuted and they're put to death. They seem lost to us and it looks like evil one. And so Peter has to bring back the resurrection to their consciousness. His saving work did not end with his death, but Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. And again, just as it was passive in His being put to death, here's a passivity on His part in the idea of being made alive in the Spirit. We're going to touch upon this again next week. But Luther here is contrasting the realm of the flesh and the realm of the Spirit in terms of two different modes of existence. And I'm not sure I'm tracking with Luther. But I'm just explaining how some have seen this. And so he ties in the idea that we see in 1 Corinthians 15.45, the first man became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Yeah, Jesus is a life-giving spirit. But is that what Peter's getting at? I don't think so. Because Jesus has a body still. It's not the idea that Jesus went into a different realm of experience, uh, but that the power by which He was raised was the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that raises us if we die. You see, we can trust in a powerful God. We can, we can trust that if we experience persecution, it's not the final word. God still has something to say about it. And one of those words is resurrection. He will make us alive just as He made Jesus alive again by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we see that Jesus, if we jump to the end of this passage, we're going to jump over all the Noah stuff. 
all the baptism stuff, okay? Jesus did not remain on earth, but Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And what's really interesting about this passage is that if you take out the Noah stuff and you take out the baptism stuff, it does sound remarkably like what we see in 1 Timothy 3.16, which many believe is sort of a fragment of a hymn or a song. And so Peter is sort of tracking with what Peter says there. For those of you who aren't familiar, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh or body. Same word is used in both texts. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so Peter and Paul are on the same wavelength in this. His enemies wanted him to be destroyed. But the Father has in fact set him above everything upon David's throne. He is above the angels. He is above the fallen angels, the powers, and the principalities. All of these having been subjected to him. And so we see that the ugliness, the humiliation, the destruction of persecution is replaced with these kingly robes. Jesus, who was treated like garbage by the world, rejected by the builders, as we saw in chapter 2, chosen and precious to God, has been exalted and seated above all things. None of his enemies remain. He has triumphed over them all, as it says in Colossians chapter 2. This is a fulfillment of, of the Messianic Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so now all of the enemies of God are being gathered up together. They're being subjected to Jesus Christ. They're becoming part of his footstool, that which he rests upon. This is reflected in 1 Corinthians 15. Then the end, then comes the end when he, meaning Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, meaning he already reigns, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so right now, Jesus is in the process of putting all of those persecuting enemies, human and spiritual, under his feet. And so faith, faith joins us to Jesus. Faith joins us to the Jesus who not only suffered, but also to the Jesus who was raised to the Jesus who is exalted. And as we see in Ephesians 2, He made us alive and He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. We're united to that Jesus. 
And so, though we suffer persecution, we triumph over that persecution in Christ, who is triumphant, who is exalted. And so, as we consider the suffering of our brothers and sisters across the ages, including those who are suffering right now, as we consider the suffering that is yet to come that we may experience ourselves, Peter's words are intended to prepare them and us should that day arrive. That day when we must testify to the supremacy and the greatness of Jesus in the midst of our suffering and persecution. Even Jesus, though righteous, suffered for sins according to the will of God. His suffering means that He brings us back to God. That He rescues us from the places that you and I like to hide. Yeah, we still like to hide. He makes us presentable to the Father. So even while Christians suffer, they are still united to Christ. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not powers, not principalities, and not heaven, uh, sorry, not famine, not nakedness, not persecution, all those things that Paul lists at the end of Romans 8. Because we are united to Christ who triumphed over unjust suffering. And those Christians and us will also be vindicated as Jesus was vindicated. Now the question is not, is he trustworthy to do this? The question is more, do you trust him to do this? Let's pray. Father, this is a Jesus worth believing in. This is not some fantasy Jesus that gives us everything we want, but this is a Jesus who is with us through the midst of the worst this world can offer and brings us to the best that you have to offer. Father, we ask that you would give us a greater grasp of our justification so that we can continually hide less. We can hide less from you and we can hide less from one another. Continue to work in us uh, to understand all of this so that this really becomes an anchor for our souls in the midst of suffering. That the reality of our union with Jesus Christ sustains us so that we float instead of drowning. But even so, Father, we join the prayer at the end of Revelation. Come quickly, Lord. Because we want to see Jesus. And so work these things in us by the power of the Spirit. That same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. That same Spirit that seals us for salvation that same Spirit who empowers us for ministry. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.